4. Our text this morning will be verses 8 through 20. Please hear the word of God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we see this plea from a perplexed pastor as the Apostle Paul is pleading with the Galatians for them to uh, escape the slavery that they are willingly putting themselves back under again. Father, I pray as your word is read and preached this morning that all underneath the hearing of my voice and most importantly your word would escape the slavery to sin and find the freedom that is in Jesus Christ alone. And so we pray in His name. Amen. My wife and I, last Sunday, celebrated our four, four and a half um, year wedding anniversary. We got married on Leap Day. I took the big leap on Leap Day. And so we were really married 18 years ago. And I keep up with that number by my daughter's age, my oldest daughter, because she just turned 17, and I know when she turns 17, or when she's about to turn 17, that uh, I'm about to have my 18th uh, wedding anniversary. Um, She was born just one year and two days after our first anniversary. This has given me occasion to recall um, Rachel's birth process. Uh, She was born 
on uh, March 2nd uh, in 1993. She was to be born on March, March 1st. Mandy was going to be induced. And when we drove to the hospital, I noticed that it was particularly cold in the car. Uh, there was a, uh, a breeze, even though the windows were rolled up. One of the back windows in our car had been smashed out so that someone could go through and get the change out of our car. So um, a harbinger of things to come. We got to the hospital, uh, checked into our room, and there was a woman maybe two doors down that was screaming and howling, going through the birth process. It was like everything you've ever heard on TV. And Mandy said to me, I want to go home. <laughs> we, Mandy was not actually in labor that day, but she was going to be induced and they put her on Pitocin to uh, cause the labor. And when you're put on Pitocin, it causes the labor to be more intense than it otherwise would be. But that was all right, because Mandy was going to uh, have her her epidural, uh, that an epidural is like uh, an anesthetic that, that blocks the pain. And I remember in the days leading up to this, Mandy bragging to her friends that she was going to get her medicine and she was going to enjoy giving birth. And you know where it's going from there. (laughs) Um, They uh, put her on uh, the Pitocin. They put a monitor on her so that they could check and see how things were going. And her... um, her labor was not progressing as they had hoped. Uh, it was a very slow process. We started about 7 that morning, and that evening, around 7 that evening, they increased the Pitocin to help her to go uh, into labor, and so made it all the more intense. What they didn't realize is that Mandy was having back labor, that she really was in labor, and that this was a very intense labor because of the Pitocin. And all the while the nurses are telling her, Amanda, you are not going to have this baby for another 12 hours. And uh, it's going to get much worse than it is right now. And so you, you need to be tough right now. And um, around 3 a.m., the nurses told me to encourage Mandy to go to sleep because... She wouldn't have this, have have her baby until the next afternoon, and so she's going to need her sleep. So I dutifully tried to have that conversation with Mandy. <laughs> she stopped me halfway in the conversation, then turned very one-sided. Um, I'm glad that uh, or I hope Rachel was not able to to hear. Uh, <laughs> um, Rachel was born at 4:19 a.m. An hour and a little less than an hour and a half after I had talked to Mandy. She had no epidural. She went through her entire uh, labor and transition and even the baby without any medicine at all. And she screamed not once. The title of this sermon is Dystocia. Uh, And the reason why I titled this sermon this is because of verses 19 and 20. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth 
until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This word dystocia is the word for a difficult or abnormal labor and delivery process. It's actually a Greek word, uh, dis meaning uh, difficult, painful, disordered, or abnormal. Tokos uh, being the word for birth. Paul had a difficult time giving birth to these Galatians. Uh, when he first came and preached the gospel to them. And it is interesting, in verse 19, he says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. It's as if the Galatians have, if you will, inserted themselves into Paul's womb, and he is going to go through a difficult labor again. Now, for a man to have a baby, you can imagine. So, uh, that certainly would be a difficult labor. But that's, that's the, the picture that Paul is giving us. He's going to go through labor again. I'm looking for my daughter, Rachel. Why am I not... Oh, she's in the nursery. Well, then I can speak freely. (laughs) I don't know if we would have had Rachel (laughs) if she had to go through that process again. Um, Actually, I feel like we are going through that process, uh, raising a teenager. It's like giving birth again. Um, (laughs) Well, hello, Rachel. (laughs) I'll take you out to lunch. The Galatians, before they came to Christ, they did not know God. Look at verses 8 and 9. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved by those, you were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. They did not know Christ. They were enslaved to these false gods. They were really enslaved to their own sin. Their entire existence was devoid of the grace of God. Uh, They were so enslaved, their slavery was so complete, that they did not realize that they were even in slavery. Slavery to sin was their entire experience. It worries me when I... um, and particularly with uh, youth out in the community, um, that uh, they are being raised without any concept of morality or any concept of eternity or any concept of God. Uh, They are living without restraint and they don't know any better. They are enslaved to sin and they don't realize it because it is their entire existence. They are unable to see outside the circumference of their existence. And their existence is slavery to sin. And yet they don't realize it. How tragic a situation. And it's not only young people. But it is all who are living without Christ. They're worshipping false gods, it says in verse 8. The gods of the ancient pagan world were designed to not to really help them, but rather to feed their lust. 
In other words, the worship of the ancients, of, of these ancient pagan gods, were not there to restrain and help them be moral. Rather, they ended up increasing their morality because the religion was devised to feed their lusts rather than create order. So, for instance, if you wanted to have a good harvest and you were a farmer, then what you would do is you would go and worship with a temple prostitute. You would express your fertility with her so that the gods um, would be fertile to you. And of course you would pay the, the temple priest um, some money to be able to do that. Or if you struggle with worry, then you would go pay some soothsayer to uh, give you a favorable prophecy. And so this man-invented worship played to their desires and made their bondage to sin all the more strong. It made their chains all the more unbreakable. And here comes the Apostle Paul into this culture proclaiming Christ. Paul says that these uh, Galatians... In verse 9, um, that they had, they, they had been living in, according to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. The religion of the Romans and the Galatians were worshipping according to um, the Roman religion. They were uh, declaring that the that Caesar was God, and they were worshipping uh, according to this way. But the religion of the Romans was considered to be the most uh, enlightened of the religions of that day, the most highly developed of the religions, the most expressive of the then known sciences. And yet Paul comes in and he is calling this um, most developed of religions uh, weak. He's calling it elementary. A lot of people today... Um, reject the scriptures in favor of science and enlightenment. They think that they are so smart, so enlightened, so sophisticated. Paul would say that their entire worldview is weak and worthless. If you want his extended commentary on what he thinks about the, the philosophers and the thinkers of his age, you could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where he says that God has made foolish the wise of this world. The Apostle Paul is saying those who are outside Christ, however sophisticated, however many letters or degrees they have after their names, are all really only in elementary school. And they're not doing very well in school, even at that. In saying this, in speaking against the wisdom of our world, 
I'm not saying that we should re- neglect science. I'm not saying that we should reject science. I'm not saying that we should be like an ostrich and put our head in the, in the sand. Rather, I am saying that there is no conflict between the Scriptures and true science or scientific truth. And I don't know who I'm quoting, but I've heard it said before that when the biologists, when the astronomers, when the chemists, and all the other science scientists run their course, discover the secrets of the universe, when they turn that lock and, undisco- un- and uncover all these secrets, they're going to meet a theologian who has been there already for centuries. Already, the science of evolution is a house of cards that is unable to stand up under uh, even the slightest of um, critiques. And ethically, my elementary age child will has a stronger moral fiber than many adults who live in this world simply because he loves Jesus. Without Christ, no one has a moral foundation. No one has a metaphysical or ontological foundation upon which they can build their worldview or build their life. You are foundationless without Christ. Or as Christ says, you've built your your house on sand and it will come crashing down. And so this is the Galatians. Paul met them, he proclaimed Christ to them, and they came to know Christ. Uh, Verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather... God, uh, or rather they have come to be known by God. God is sovereign. He is the one who reveals His salvation. He is the one who draws a sinner to Himself. And how did they come to know Christ? Well, he talks about this in in verses 12 through 15. Paul's unfavorable circumstances opened up the door for the gospel. He talks about an ailment in verses 13 and 14. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. The commentators speculate on what uh, Paul's ailment was. Some people say it was malaria. Uh, Other people say it was a problem with his eyesight. Um, I think that that's probably the case. Some have speculated that he had some kind of... um, pus or some kind of something that that was oozing from his eyes so that it was a trial um, for them. He says, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. So it's something, oh, and, and he talks about uh, in verse 15, if you look at verse 15, um, I can testify to you that if possible you would have gouged out your eyes. 
and given them to me. So it's probably an eye element uh, at the end of Galatians, Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. The Apostle Paul says, See, what, see with, what, with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. In other words, his eyesight was very poor. It is speculated. That seems reasonable. Whatever his, his ailment was, and we, we can't be certain about it, but his ailment opened up the door uh, for him to proclaim Christ among the Galatians. It was his ailment, it was his weakness that opened the door for him to proclaim Christ. You know, I, I imagine that there are many of you here this morning who are not being used by God for His kingdom and, and the way that you would like to be used. And I think the reason is, is you think, well, God can't use me. But let me tell you, God can use you if you are, being, if you are willing to be used in His service. In fact, He can use you in spite of your perceived deficiencies. Paul is using, I'm sorry, God is using Paul's weakness as the opportunity to proclaim Christ. Let me give you an assignment. If you want to be used by God, simply pray to Him, God, use me for your service. Use me for your kingdom. Help me to be an instrument in the, in the lives of other people for the sake of the gospel. Just simply pray that and watch and see what God will do. Look at verse 15. Also, he says something interesting here as he's talking about how uh, he came to be used in their life. He says, What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify that if possible you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Paul put himself under the care of the Galatians. In other words, he welcomed the Galatians serving him. And I do believe that people like to serve. uh, Because as you serve, you feel more a part of things. If you're here and you're not serving, and not feeling as connected, I'll tell you, I told the search committee that the day one that they called me, I am a poor manager Uh, I I feel my way along on how to get things moving. I don't really... They didn't give me those uh, classes in seminary. But there's a lot here. If if you want to be more connected, jump in. Serve alongside other brothers and sisters in Christ. And um, don't wait for permission. Um, Paul welcomed their service, and their service ended up being their service of Paul ended up being being an inroad for him to be able to serve them better. Paul also says in verse twelve that he was approachable. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Paul didn't come in as the religious expert. Paul didn't come in as the holier-than-thou evangelist. Paul says in verse 12, he became like them. Sometimes we put up invisible walls in the church when we wrongly insist that people to come to our church become like us. Um... 
Yes, we will always insist on people pursuing holiness, pursuing Christ. But sometimes we can put up unbiblical walls. And even though we don't see them, um, I think visitors feel them. In fact, a few have said that to me. And uh, we need to make sure that we are welcoming people in as guests rather than as visitors who we're going to change. And then, we, and then we are better able to welcome them into our ministry, better able to welcome them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what the Apostle Paul did. He became like them, and that was the door that opened, along with his ailment, that he was able to proclaim Christ to them. But now the Paul has gone away. Now the Galatians are returning to their paganism. Look at verse 17. It says in verse 17 um, that they are being manipulated. The Judaizers, once Paul left, the Judaizers came in. They're coming in amongst this new flock. And what they're doing is they're making a big deal about the progress that the Galatians have made in moving away from their, from their uh, false worship, from their, their worship of the false gods, the Roman religion. Uh, verse 17, they make much of you. The, the Judaizers make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out. But you may make much of them. See, the Judaizers are coming in and making a, a, a big deal about the progress that the Galatians have made. They're showering compliments upon them. And now they're saying to the Galatians, now that they've won them over by, by all this slick talk, all, this, all these compliments, they're saying, you've made a good start. Now you need to cross the finish line. Now you need to, to become Jewish. You need to be circumcised. You need to observe uh, these religious holidays, the, the Jewish calendar. They're being manipulated, and Paul's telling them that. These Judaizers are trying to manipulate you. That they're also, the, Jew, the, the Galatians are also manipulative. That's what he's saying in verse 18. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. When, when Paul was with them, they acted a certain way. They said the right things. Uh, and in his correspondence with them after he left, they were saying the right things. But in reality, they were trying to manipulate Paul. They wanted Paul to be happy with them. I remember my dad. Uh, this is before he came to Christ. He was working around um, in the backyard and whatever project was was not going very well. And we had always gone to church, uh, but my dad became a, a Christian um, after I had become a Christian. But this was, like I said, before he became a Christian, he was working in the back. Something wasn't going well. And a, uh, a little dark cloud of profanity had formed above his head. <laughs> and uh, the pastor had come and he didn't he didn't know the pastor had come the pastor had knocked on his on the front door he heard something around the back walked around the backyard and there was my dad my dad felt like it was so unfair that the pastor came around the house unannounced and caught him in his frustration and um 
because my dad was wanting to put on the airs of righteousness when the pastor came around. And so uh, Paul is chiding them for that. But most seriously, they are being religiously moralistic. Verses um, 10 and 11. He says, you observe, he's talking about their previous life in verses 8 and 9, but now he's talking about their present life. But you observe days and months and seasons and years, I'm afraid that I have labored over you in vain. The Galatians were observing empty religion. They were practicing circumcision. They were observing the Jewish holidays, much like the people who come to church on Easter and Christmas. Observing... um, religion, but doing it in a very empty way. And it's interesting that he puts this in this uh, observing their present observance of Judaism in the same context as their previous observance of paganism. And what Paul's saying, and I don't want you to miss this, this is what I want you to get, that they are going right back into their paganism by, by being uh, only outwardly religious. In other words, observing Christianity only outwardly is the same thing as being a pagan. There's no difference. Really, it's worse. Um, sin in a person's life makes them dysfunctional. And that's part of the grace of God. God wants the sin to make us so miserable and so unable to function that we have no recourse but reach out to Jesus Christ. But what religious moralism does is it makes sin functional. It takes away the dysfunctionality. And it ends up hardening the heart. The most hard-hearted people in the world are not out there in the world. They're sitting in the pews of churches. Let me ask you this morning. Are there any of you here who are shielding yourself away from Jesus Christ by being outwardly religious? Are there any of you here who are coming to church simply so that you can keep Christ at arm's length. I want you, Jesus, only enough to get me into heaven. All across America today, there are people who are hiding from Jesus in church. Please don't be one of them. And regardless of how long you've hidden from Him, you come to Him right now and He will receive you with open arms. I love it in the Gospels and in the first part of Acts where it talks about the the Pharisees coming to Christ. Christ welcomes sinners to Himself. I'm going to conclude... Uh, the last point, Christ being formed in you is the antidote to, be, to backsliding. That's what's happening to the Galatians. They are backsliding. And Paul is laboring, verse 19, 
to see Christ formed in them. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How does Christ become formed in you? First of all, you receive Him by faith. You come to Him just as you are and receive Him. And then, you make sure that there is nothing between you and Him. You turn away from those things. In other words, repent of those things that you would love more than Him. And then you simply spend time with Him. Rachel's now 17. The biggest influence in her life, for good or for evil, are her parents, Mandy and myself. I remember when Rachel was... She couldn't talk. She was probably not even six months old. And we were out in the park. Uh, We'd gone home for the summer. We were down in Savannah, Georgia. And we were out in the park... And I looked at Rachel, and she's going, and I thought, that is so odd. What is she doing? Until I looked at Mandy. Mandy had a piece of gum in her mouth. (laughs) She was learning right there to imitate us. Seventeen years of Rachel watching us, being loved by us, depending on us, being disciplined by us. She's growing up, and she's going to hate this worse than anything, to be us. (laughs) I remember when I was 22 years old, and I just was sitting around thinking one evening, I am my dad. (laughs) And and I'm glad my dad was who who he is, so that I grew up to be like him. And so, how do you grow up How does does Christ become formed in you? Spend time with Him. Fellowship with Him in His Word. Speak to Him in prayer. Exercise your faith. Stretch out your faith um, as as you walk with Him. In other words, take big steps, leaps, if you will, uh, of faith as you trust in Him. Spend time with His people. You may not realize it. Little by little you're becoming more like Him. And you're growing in Him. Just like Rachel has grown over these past 17 years. We don't see it from day to day. But from year to year she changes so much. Spend time with Jesus and you'll become more and more like Him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God. It has been said once that our growth in Christ, uh, our walk with Christ, seems like a yo-yo. We have our ups, we have our downs. But then the person said that we, even though our life is like a yo-yo, it is in the hands of a man or a person who is walking up the steps. In the midst of the pain, in the midst of the joys, in the midst of the mundane, we don't see our growth. And then we look back over the years and we're amazed where you have brought us by the power of your Spirit. Father, I pray for any who are tempted to shrink back. Father, for those who 
uh, think that they cannot be used for those who are discouraged because they don't think that they are growing. God, draw near to them. Reveal yourself to them in your word. Draw their hearts to Jesus and cause them to grow. And again, Father, if there are any here who do not know Jesus, are here simply to hide from Him, I pray that You would shine the light of Your glory and Your love on their life and draw them powerfully and sweetly to Yourself. I pray in His glorious name. Amen.